0: Welcome to TNS, The New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for part one of a two-part conversation with Sandra Maitrey and host Michael Lerner, titled Enneagram and the Diamond Approach to Inner Self-Realization.
1: Sandra Maitrey, welcome to The New School at Commonweal.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Pleased to be here
1: sandra you are a uh, spiritual teacher a um a master of uh enneagram studies and uh enneagram teaching an artist um and you are very rare in the field of enneagram work in that you work directly with uh claudio naranjo who uh Really brought uh, the Enneagram to the United States. So it's a very great honor for me to have this conversation with you as we seek to uh, build a a biography of your path to where you are today, uh, what I call a spiritual biography in in our new new school work. So I'd like to ask you. To begin, um, really at the beginning, um, where were you born and raised? Where did you
2: come (laughs) from? Um, I'm laughing because I grew up in the military, Mm -hmm. and so I wasn't really, I was raised all over. Mm -hmm. Um, I was born in New Jersey, Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, and only lived there six months. Uh, and I think by the time I was 22, I added it up, and I had moved 20 times.
1: Hmm. What What did your father do in the military?
2: He was a colonel in the army.
1: Mm-hmm. And what was his work in the army?
2: He was a an electronics engineer, and uh, he had he had been to West Point. Um, he was one of two Jews at West Point at the time that he was there and He came from a very poor working-class family and so the Depression was hitting and he stayed in the military after West Point Uh, West Point was the only way he could get to college Hmm. So anyway, he he uh, was very devoted to our country and he did a lot of work during World War II. He designed the um, the China-India-Burma Communications Network. Huh. And uh, then when I was, let's see, when I was five and a half, we moved to France. And he designed the NATO Communications Network.
1: Wow. So he had real responsibilities.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah
1: quite high level uh engineer electrical engineer
2: yeah and
1: communications networks
2: yeah. right right yeah and what
1: about your mother what was she all about
2: well my mother was miss dallas of 1930 wow she was a beauty queen she was mm-hmm. stunning mm-hmm. and um she was really however a 50s wife and mm-hmm. uh so she gave up all career ambitions to be a homemaker.
1: And how many uh, children did
2: they have? I have an older sister. She's thirteen years older. mm
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: She was born. She was born four years before. Um, let's see. Before Pearl Harbor. Mm. And so the war began, and my parents didn't really feel, or, yeah, they they actually didn't feel that it was safe to bring another Jewish child into the world. They knew what was going on in Germany.
1: So they were both Jewish?
2: Yeah, both Jewish, yeah.
1: And yet your mother was uh, the beauty queen in a non-Jewish world, right?
2: (laughs) Well, there's actually a huge, or at least there was a huge Jewish community in Dallas at the time. Mm -hmm.
1: And so, um, what was it like in your early years growing up in that family? What what, what was the atmosphere like? What was the, the family like?
2: Well, it was. Uh, it, it was the military. So it was really all I knew. Uh, it was when, when we left the military, I realized it was actually a very unusual kind of childhood that I had. But of course at the time I didn't, I didn't know that at all. And it was just, uh, a, a, um, a time of, for me at least, a time of constant change. You know, anytime I made friends, I would be leaving them. Mm. And uh, so I learned how to make friends very quickly. Mm. And my, let's see, my family itself. Um, well, my sister went to college when we w- moved to France when I was five and a half. And we'd been very close before then. She had done a lot of the babysitting and taking care of me. And um, so then I was pretty much an only child after that. And I had a series of caretakers in France, uh, several of which were amazing people. And I really feel like they saved my life in many ways.
1: You told uh, someone else that you were in conversation with that at the age of eight or nine, you began to have some strong experiences of the divine. Yeah. Uh, what was the first of those?
2: Um, well, they were they were all actually quite similar. And um, this was a time that... In France, we'd been there, I think, three, two and a half, three years. And my parents wanted to move to Paris because there was a lot of nightlife in Paris. And we'd been living out in the country in Versailles. And for me as a child, it was a horrible, horrible transition. Because I was we were moved into, or we moved into an apartment in the middle of uh, a very a very busy part of Paris and there were no other children around. And, um, it was, it was a very lonely time for me. Um, my parents at the time, I don't know if it's still the same in the military, but there are constant social engagements. And so my parents were gone to cocktail parties almost every single night. And I was left with whatever caretaker we happened to have at the time. So I was, uh, I was quite depressed. It was, it was, uh, I I recognize it now as a time that um, a pretty severe depression began for me. And at the same time, I started to have these experiences where Somehow I I just knew um, I I suspect it's from a previous life from previous Practices I'd done in another life, but I would say my name over and over and over again until I would feel like I was leaving my separate sense of self and I was merging with I called it God and then it would get a little scary for me, and then I would start saying my name again and again and again, and I would come back, and I had a particular chair that I would sit on when I did this practice.
1: What was so, the chair like? Huh? What was the chair like?
2: Uh, it's a little antique French children's chair.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I still have it.
1: Mm.
2: Was kind of like my Alice in Wonderland chair.
1: So, um, how long would these experiences last?
2: I don't know. Mm-hmm. I I honestly don't know.
1: And when you had that sense of merging with God, uh huh, what was? How can you describe, if at all, what that experience was like?
2: Well, it was a sense of being one with everything and at the same time being transcendent to everything mm-hmm.
1: and what how how long did these go on for was it for a period of years or did it continue up until now
2: no i i think it was just really during that particular year and a half in paris that mm-hmm. i had those experiences i don't remember it after that um, So that was that was one kind of experience the other kind is that I began at the time to have dreams of flying hmm. and um The dreams were always very similar in which I was with a group of people and suddenly I would just lift off and get airborne and I've actually had those dreams my whole life so those do you find in those
1: dreams that you can control the flight at all, or is it involuntary?
2: No, it's not involuntary. Mm-hmm. It's definitely something that I can control. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So going back to this period, the year and a, by the way, what year was that in Paris? Do you remember? Um,
2: that was like probably 57, 57, uh-huh. 58
1: you know i I was in paris uh at that time as well um and, but specifically I spent a year in paris in nineteen sixty one working as a um copyboy for the New York Times international and living in a uh, a small hotel on the left bank um, where i uh played the guitar at metro stations with a couple of friends so uh, <laughs> it was a very uh memorable period of my own life but when i was there in 61 the um de gaulle was the president and the um the war with algeria and the terrorism in paris was going on there were plastic bombs going off and so on and so forth so i can't remember what was happening politically in 57 was no, it
2: yeah, yeah
1: sorry what, what was it like go ahead
2: that was before de Gaulle. Uh okay. when de Gaulle came in, he actually threw NATO out of France. Oh, did he? Yeah.
1: I forgot yeah. that. How yeah. interesting. Yeah.
2: That was why we came home.
1: I get it. So, okay, so did the dreams of flying start about the same time as yeah. the Yeah. Okay. So yeah. what was the impact on your depression, childhood depression, feeling so alone? Because your sister, who you had been very close to, had gone off to college. And so mm-hmm. you were alone. Your parents were at all these uh, functions that they had to attend. The caregivers saved your life. Uh, who, who was the caregiver that, that, you, that you most feel saved your life? Who was, who was that person?
2: Well there were two of them actually. Uh, the first one was in Versailles. We lived in mm-hmm. Versailles for 2 years. Mm-hmm. And we lived in a in a very big house, uh a, a little sh- it wasn't exactly a chateau, but it was a very big house on about um a square mile of walled in gardens. And she, there was a gardener's family who lived over the garage and uh, she had, her name was Leo and she basically came with the house Mm. and she did all the cooking and she did the housekeeping and she took care of me and she was uh, just amazing for me. You know, she was really there for me and uh she taught me french children's stories and she would take me on picnics and you know she would do a lot of things with me that that kids like to do and that my mm-hmm. parents really didn't have the time or weren't really oriented toward so mm-hmm. she was she was huge
1: mm-hmm. you mentioned uh in another conversation that um I think the words were that your mother dabbled in Rosicrucian and Tarot and other things. Uh, yeah. When you, when you say she dabbled in it, was she personally serious about spiritual life or were these sort of things that she kind of did on the side?
2: Well, I think both in some ways. Um, I think actually she began getting into Rosicrucianism when we were in Paris, mm. she was going through menopause at the time, and I think she was pretty depressed herself mm. uh, and she had a little altar and um she had a you know a whole a whole kind of uh ritual that she would go through that I guess was part of the Rosicrucian mm. system, and it seemed to help her a lot. And she'd always been she'd always been a little bit spiritually inclined. Mm-hmm. Um, like one of her close childhood friends was a, a famous psychic, and mm. there was a lot of sort of um, I would say more lightweight spirituality in mm. her background.
1: And your father did he have any of those inclinations?
2: No, he really didn't. Not at mm-hmm. the time. Not mm-hmm. at the time. Much later.
1: Later, he found some of
2: that. Later, yeah, yeah, in the 60s, when everything Mm -hmm. was shifting and changing, and so Mm -hmm. was I. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. he started checking out some of the things that I was starting to get into. Mm -hmm.
1: So you came back from Paris when de Gaulle kicked NATO out of France, Um, and where did you land then?
2: We Lived at a military base. It's about an hour north of Chicago Fort Sheridan mm-hmm. We were there for two years
1: and what was that period like for you?
2: That was great. It was right on the shore of uh, Lake Michigan mm-hmm. and at the time it wasn't polluted and so we could go swimming all summer there mm-hmm. and <laughs> Uh, in in the winter it got very cold there and it snowed a lot so we you know we would build snow forts and mm-hmm. it, it was a great time for me as mm-hmm. a child and it, mm-hmm. it was a um, very large base and I learned how to ride a bike and so me and my friends would bike all over the place and you know, there was a big ravine behind the house and we'd go sledding in the winter and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. And there were a lot of kids, a lot of kids mm-hmm. around. So it was a real shift from Paris for me.
1: And so your sense of contact with the divine, did it continue in that period?
2: Um, I don't remember it so much in that mm-hmm. period anymore. Okay. I think it kind okay. of went dormant.
1: Mm-hmm. And then after Chicago, where did you get based next? Uh,
2: well, we left the military at that point. I was mm-hmm. 11, and my father had been up for promotion to general five times mm-hmm. uh, for all that he'd done. And there was an anti-Semite on the board, and so he was never promoted. Mm-hmm. And he had a heart attack finally. Well- while we were at Fort Sheridan, and Mm -hmm. so he had to leave the military. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where did you go?
2: We moved to California. We moved Mm -hmm. to um, around Palo Alto. We eventually Mm -hmm. settled in Palo Alto. Mm -hmm.
1: And did he go into industry work or did he retire?
2: No, he started working for Stanford Research Institute.
1: Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah. They yeah. interested, as as you know, they ended up doing some very interesting work in uh, psi Phenomena.
2: Yeah, I don't really know about, uh-huh. is, is yeah. it, is uh was it Russell Targ? And- yeah,
1: right, Targ and Putov.
2: Right, right. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so you settled in Palo Alto at that point, you were how old, roughly?
2: I was 11.
1: 11 then, yeah. okay. And uh, so did you start going to school in Palo Alto? Uh
2: Uh-huh. Yep.
1: What kind of school was that?
2: Uh, It was just regular. I I think I went to a um, I started out in the last year of an elementary school. I think Mm -hmm. I was in sixth grade Mm -hmm. or so Um, and Yeah, it was just it was uh, at the time the schools in Palo Alto I don't know if they're still this way but they were really good Mm. really good schools very progressive Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, It was it was a really good experience for me. I loved school Mm.
1: What did you like particularly in school?
2: I just loved studying I liked Mm -hmm. learning I loved history, and um, I loved English. Um, I didn't like math and science so much.
1: And um, so did you stay in that school system through high school?
2: Uh, almost. Mm-hmm. I I was there through, well, when I was in, um, they call it now middle school. hmm We moved to Thailand for two years. Oh my goodness with SRI Um, My dad was doing some research Over there and I think it was really for the Vietnamese war that was just beginning Mm -hmm. So we moved over there in 63 to Bangkok And Mm -hmm. we were there two years so besides that I was in the school system (laughs) the whole time,
1: right? Was that was that two years in the middle of the schools? And did you come back to the same school?
2: I came back to high school uh, Mm -hmm. but really with the same kids Ever ever since middle school at the time. I don't know if they do it anymore, but they lamed us we we Mm -hmm. took a bunch of intelligence tests Mm -hmm. and Essentially the group of kids that I was put into classes with when I was 12 are the same kids I was in classes with when I graduated high school.
1: Hmm.
2: So we're still good friends.
1: Hmm. So what were you like as you remember yourself in eighth grade?
2: Eighth grade, God. When we went over to Thailand, I was um kind of klutzy. I um was very self-conscious mm-hmm. um i thought i was totally unattractive uh you know i was just going through that sort of teenage mm-hmm. angst early teenage angst mm-hmm. so it was uh it was a it was a challenging time
1: mm. and uh what was high school like for you
2: well high school was Great Um, When I got back to to Palo Alto High school, um, I guess it was 66 Mm
0: -hmm.
2: When I was in my let's see, I was in my junior year Mm -hmm. uh, And that had gone pretty uneventfully Um, But uh, In 66 the whole world started to change Mm -hmm. And the stuff was going on in the Haight-Ashbury. There was a lot of LSD at Stanford University. Mm -hmm. So the whole culture was shifting. And I just jumped in, you know, feet first.
1: Mm -hmm. And what were you like as a senior in high school?
2: I was pretty wild. Mm -hmm. I was wild. I was a weekend hippie. Um, I would go up to the Haight-Ashbury any chance I got, and I was was an honor student, and one of my buddies, who was the class president, finagled these senior privilege cards for us, which meant Mm -hmm. that we could write our own excuses to school. Mm -hmm. That was for the kids that were, you know, academically prominent. So I would just cut school and go to the hate and hang out.
1: And what what was it like hanging out in the hate?
2: It was fabulous. It was mm-hmm. fabulous. I loved it.
1: Were you doing drugs?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Just marijuana or psychedelics as well?
2: No, I was taking LSD probably every mm-hmm. weekend.
1: Whoa. So you were having quite deep experiences. As yes. a- Yes. So, how did the psychedelic experiences and the development of yourself in this nascent hippie period connect, if at all, with your eight and nine year old experiences of the divine and your experiences of flying?
2: Well, I think all of that began to feel possible. Mm-hmm. through drugs. Mm-hmm. All of it became accessible. Mm-hmm. And I began to realize that what I had been tuning into as a child is a deeper sense of reality mm-hmm. than the one that my parents were living, you know, the right. the regular cultural norm. Mm-hmm. And so when I say I really dived into it, it was that that was the draw. I get it.
1: And how did your parents respond to your dive into that?
2: Oh, my parents were beside themselves. Mm -hmm. My parents were absolutely beside themselves. Mm
1: -hmm. And how did that dynamic work out?
2: (laughs) Well, um, there was a lot of fighting, Mm -hmm. a lot of fighting for my whole last year of high school. They sent me to a psychotherapist Mm -hmm. and she was one of the people who really saved me during that time. Cause she really understood me and understood what I was up to. Mm-hmm. And, um, my, my parents had sent me because I had, um, I had gained like 60 pounds during that period. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in Thailand, my girlfriends and I decided we wanted to look like the Beatles wives and girlfriends. So mm-hmm. we, dieted ourselves into nothing mm-hmm. and it totally messed with my body and when i started doing drugs i just i didn't care you know i just kind of lost control and so i'd gained a lot of weight my parents were furious that was really the main thing they were upset about
1: was the looks
2: was the looks exactly mm-hmm. Right, because I was supposed to find a husband and, you know, get married and settle down. Mm-hmm. And I was destroying my prospects. Mm-hmm. So they sent me to a psychotherapist, and she, she was great. She mm-hmm. would mediate the fights we'd have. It was mostly my dad and me. My dad and I had terrible screaming fights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was like I finally found my voice, you know, Mm -hmm. and I would talk back. And Mm -hmm. that was, in my family, that was unheard of.
1: Mm -hmm. Were you at a phase, I mean, obviously you'd gained a lot of weight, but what was your relational history with boys or girls beginning to be uh, as you went through high school?
2: Well... It's a good question. I um, I had always had boyfriends from the time I was like four. I always mm-hmm. had a little boyfriend, mm-hmm. um, and then when I hit puberty, it kind of dried up. You know, mm-hmm. I I I started to feel self conscious and unattractive. Like mm-hmm. I said, and so I didn't have these little boy buddies anymore, mm-hmm. and. I um I don't know. I would get crushes on guys, but I was too shy to actually talk to them and mm-hmm. it was it was like that.
1: So you weren't active. It was like crushes from a distance. Uh
2: yeah, yeah, and I no, I did have a boyfriend. I had a boyfriend my junior year of uh high school. Mm-hmm. Uh and he broke up with me because according to my school psychologist who I went to see, I wasn't having sex with him. Mm. So that was the beginning of the whole hippie period. And I immediately started indiscriminately having Mm. sex. Mm. So I became sort of rampantly promiscuous.
1: Mm -hmm. What was that like for you?
2: Um, It was... It was freeing on the one hand, Mm. and it was also not very satisfying. Mm.
0: You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Sandra Mitri and host Michael Lerner. And
1: so uh, after high school, uh, what did you do next?
2: Let's see. After high school, I went to Israel for a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had after we moved to California uh, My mother got very interested in Hadassah one of Mm -hmm. the Jewish Zionist organizations Mm -hmm. and I I think what was really happening in my family is we had always been very assimilated Jews Mm -hmm. and Because of what happened to my dad. It was like when we got to California, it was like, okay, we're Jewish Let's find out what that's all about And so I also joined a the the kind of children's version of Hadassah young Judea and Then um, On our way back from Thailand, we had stopped in israel for a couple of weeks And I had met an israeli at a party there and we had corresponded. This is when I was like 15 Uh, and so I wanted to go back to israel and find out what would happen with him So that was that was a big motivation for going to israel and Mm -hmm. as soon as I got there the relationship tanked um but uh, anyway, so I spent a year in Israel.
1: Were you on a kibbutz or what?
2: Uh, we were all over. We we spent the first five months in Jerusalem, studying Hebrew and doing a lot of studying Jewish history and religious history and so forth. Um, and then we were on a moshav for a month and a kibbutz for three months.
1: Mm-hmm. And what was what year was that?
2: This was, we we got there right after the uh, Yom Kippur War. So it was 67. So I was there 67, 68.
1: And um, what happened? So you had reconnected in the Haight-Ashbury years with beginning to connect your childhood experiences of the divine and your, your dreams of flying began to realize through the psychedelics and so on that all of this somehow connected.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: what happened to those experiences as you spent a year in Israel rediscovering Judaism and studying in Jerusalem and so on?
2: Well, the, the main thing that happened in terms of what you're asking me about is that in our in our Jewish philosophy class things got to a point where i was telling the teacher that i believed that god was everywhere and inhabited everything and that i had seen that i knew that mm. and he didn't believe me mm. and he said if you really believe that you're not a jew
1: how strange.
2: And I said, okay, deeply strange. And, and I said, okay, I'm a heretic. And he said, no, you're too ignorant to be a heretic.
1: How lovely.
2: (laughs) So it was kind of the beginning of the death knell of my engagement with Judaism.
1: Whereas if he had interested you or known about or been competent to tell you about Jewish mysticism, it could have taken
2: a whole different direction. Right, right. It might have. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I, uh, being over there when I was on kibbutz, we were bombed twice. Hmm. The kibbutz was right under the Golan Heights, mm-hmm. and um, the I guess it was the Jordanians. Yeah, we were kind of in the triangle. Um, of Israel, Jordan, and Syria. Hmm. And um, it was just, I I realized, you know, this is not for me. And the whole culture in Israel at the time, I don't know if it's still like this, but it it was very much a survival mentality. And I was way beyond that. Culturally, it it just it was not a fit for me
1: Just to connect our lives again. I went up into uh, the Golan Heights with the Israeli troops during that war as a war correspondent.
2: Wow, and
1: then I was in the first group of American war correspondents to cross the Sinai Desert uh, right at the end of the war my What happened was i had been on a fulbright in brazil after i graduated from harvard 1965 i graduated 65 66 i had a fulbright in rio de janeiro and then i came home and was about to start graduate school at yale and the war was taking place so my brother and i both got press passes mine from the washington post and from the atlantic monthly and my brother steve from the village voice and we both flew over because at the time the war started it looked like israel's just going to get wiped off the map and um by the time we got there israel had was already that had already taken out the uh the air force of uh, of uh, the arab states involved egypt and so on and um but there was still a lot of fighting going on so i hitched a ride with the Israeli troops up into the Golan Heights. And what happened was once the commander at the head of the Jeep convoy realized, actually it wasn't the Golan Heights, it was the mountains, or the hills adjacent to the Golan Heights that were still part of that area. But we didn't go into the Golan Heights itself, which was famous, famous uh, battleground. But when the commander realized that um, There were some American correspondents at the back of the of the convoy of jeeps He told us to get out and walk back to Israeli lines. So the closest I came to getting killed was walking back toward the Israeli lines at night fire with the Israelis waiting for invaders. And -hmm. there were three or four of us, and the the other the others were terrified because they were old enough to be terrified. And I was young enough at least, or whatever, my psychological makeup was such that I was slightly oblivious to the fear. But then I went down to the Sinai and went across the Sinai in the first convoy of Jeeps. And that was like a Fellini movie because there was desert and then there were these dead bodies just scattered across the desert like flowers, like blood flowers. And there were all these burned-out tanks and half-tracks, and then you could see the Egyptian soldiers walking about 200 yards off the road, back toward Egypt. Mm-hmm. So it was that experience that convinced me, because I had thought about being a foreign correspondent. I worked for the Washington Post in uh, in in, um, in summers in college, that I wasn't going to be um, a war correspondent. I I realized you could get killed and life was too precious to me. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's interesting uh, since we're both of a certain age, how our lives have kind of intersected here, you yeah. know, uh, and at Yale, um, I was the hippie assistant professor. I taught the course on the counterculture mm-hmm. and, uh, and, uh, also taught th- uh, political theory. Uh, but in any case, um, uh, I actually wrote an article for Government and Opposition called Anarchism and the American Counterculture, which was looking at the relationship between anarchist theory and the counterculture. So you and I, uh, you're younger than I am, but um, you and I both had these meaningful encounters, both Mm -hmm. with Israel and uh, with the counterculture. Um, And they had profound effects on both.
2: Yeah, so, yeah yeah definitely.
1: So when you came back from Israel, uh, what did you do then?
2: Uh, I went to UC Berkeley
1: mm-hmm.
2: My couple of my girlfriends were there, and uh, we got an apartment together. and I went to to UC for about I guess about a year and a half, two years. And I had, um, during the the hippie days, I had started to make art. And I was wanting to major in art. And this was at a time when uh, Reagan was the governor and he slashed funding for the art department at at Berkeley. And it was really terrible. And I realized I was not going to get an art education at Berkeley. So I transferred up to um, uh, University of Washington for a semester, but I hated the weather. I couldn't stand being up there. Um, It rained every day except one that I was there for six months. And I came back and I went to art school in Oakland.
1: California arts and crafts.
2: Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And what was that
2: like? Um, I got a great art education. And I'm still very, very grateful for it. It's also a time that really determined the course of my life. Because my housemate there, I had just answered an ad, and quite by chance, my housemate was a young woman named Karen Johnson. Mm-hmm. And Karen was into all kinds of spiritual things. She was at the time; she was a um, uh, disciple of what is it? Par- Paramahansa Yogananda,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and so she was. She was constantly handing me these spiritual books to read, and her parents were also into spiritual things. They were into self hypnosis and into life regression, and um, you know, just all kinds of very cool stuff. So, I got way more interested in all of that than I did in my art career. Mm-hmm. And I had an unfortunate relationship. And um, I realized that I, I needed I needed help relationally. I needed I, I needed some kind of um, um, therapeutic support. And at the time, gestalt therapy was the happening thing. A friend of mine was at Antioch West, and she took me to a gestalt group, and I thought, wow, this is so cool. And um, then a few weeks later, she she was living in a – she was a friend from Israel, American, but we had met in Israel – And she was living in a commune um, that was run by um, James Fadiman. And down in Los Altos, and there were a whole bunch of of graduate students from Stanford there into consciousness stuff. So she was kind of linked in to the very beginning consciousness movement. So, one day she came over and she handed me this flyer from Claudio Naranjo talking about a group he was starting. And um, he said a part of it would be gestalt and a part of it would be working with the Enneagram and it would be spiritual work as well as psychological work. And I said, that's it. I'm going. So, that was the beginning of my work with Claudio. That
1: was 1971.
2: 71 yeah yeah
1: and what time of year was it
2: uh it was the fall i think i th- i may have met him in the summer the first time he spoke at the unitarian church in the city
1: that's your first memory of him is summer of 71
2: yeah um, mm-hmm. at a
1: unitarian church yep and when you first saw him and heard him yeah uh what was your response just hearing him at the Unitarian Church?
2: I was uh, completely mesmerized. Mm-hmm. He was at a phase in his life. He had just returned from working with Oscar Ichazo in um, Chile, and he was um, he was in touch. He was. In an amazing state of consciousness. And to me it was palpable.
1: So when you got the flyer, you were already mesmerized by this guy.
2: Um, I thought it sounded really good. Yeah. But I I did have a sense actually, just even looking at the flyer, I had a sense this is it.
1: So the friend who brought you the flyer was the Jewish woman, the American Jewish woman who you knew in Israel, right?
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: But one of your roommates was Karen Johnson. Yes. And did, was Karen also planning to go to this, um, this workshop, this course?
2: No, no. Uh, Part of the, part of the, um, uh, how can I put it? Part of the difficulty that I was going through was that my old boyfriend had fallen in love with her.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that in another uh, interview I yeah. did. So this is
2: yeah. So something. I was heartbroken. Mm. And um, no, she wasn't interested. She was doing her thing with him.
1: I get it. I get yeah. it. Yeah. But just going back to you were deeply heartbroken by this breakup, right?
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's why you were seeking some kind of help with relationships.
2: Well, it was more complicated than that, actually, Michael. It's that, yes, I was heartbroken, but it began. I began to realize that he had not been interested in me in over two years. Mm -hmm. And why was I hanging on to this Mm -hmm. dream, you know, that this guy would come back to me? Mm -hmm. And I realized that it was a pure fantasy and that something was wrong that Mm -hmm. in terms, for me, relationally, that I needed to get sorted out so that I could have decent relationships with men, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you. So you went to the first meeting of the um, course.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Where did did it take place?
2: Uh, There was a gathering in Claudia's backyard in Berkeley. And I think there were just about a dozen of us there that day. It was kind of an introduction to the course, to the group. So it was in his backyard.
1: Can you describe the scene to me?
2: Um, Well, we were all sitting on the lawn and um, Claudio had a flip chart and he drew a diagram of the, well, he took us through some meditations and then he drew the diagram of the Enneagram on this flip chart and briefly described each of the types. And then he went around to each person and did a transmission. And it was really powerful. I, I was totally sold after that.
1: And what was that transmission he did with you?
2: It was, he, he was looking into each person's eyes And he was really imparting where he was in his consciousness.
1: Where that person was?
2: No, where he was.
1: Oh, where he was.
2: He was transmitting. He was uh, was doing a transmission of his state.
1: I see. So he wasn't reading the other person. He was looking in each person's eyes and doing a transmission of his own state. Yes. Okay.
2: Yes. Yes.
1: How old was he at that point, roughly?
2: Uh, let's see. I think Claudio was 20 years older than me. So he must have been, I was like 21, 22.
1: So yes, he's 41 or so. Yeah,
2: yeah, thereabouts.
1: And I've seen photographs of him. He's, I mean, I also have watched. Uh, actually, one of the real regrets of my life has been that I didn't meet Claudio Naronjo when I could have, because I've been in the Bay Area uh, since 1972. Um, and I could have met him. Um, but I've watched tapes of him, particularly tapes of his older years. But at that time, uh, seeing the photographs, I mean, he was, aside from, as you describe him, being deeply tuned in, to a deeper reality, who's also a handsome, charismatic human being. Oh yeah,
2: know. absolutely, Yeah, absolutely, yeah.
1: <coughs> so, so many places we could take this, but let's go, because what I wanna do is come back to Naranjo and also to Ichazo, but I wanna keep our, our, the sort of trajectory going here. So you began to take the course. You know, it's interesting when I read more about the course and listened to the another one of the interviews that you did online, I had always thought that these groups were like 12 or 15 people, you know, mm-hmm. but in fact, they were 50 to 70 people, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah. so one thing that interests me about that is that he was teaching this as part of an esoteric teaching that was not to be public uh, and that he felt strongly about that. And in the long run, he became very upset when the first books began to come out and distanced himself from, you know, went back to Chile and uh, distanced himself from the making it public. What was the distinction in his mind between teaching teaching the Enneagram and and the and spiritual work from an esoteric tradition to fifty to seventy people who show up and um, that not being public, how did he understand that?
2: Well, the group wasn't after a time the group wasn't open to people oh, all right. So he really saw it as a mystery school. Right. And that he was carrying on the tradition of a mystery school.
1: Okay. I get that.
2: And, and I think he felt that the time was right. I know he felt that the time was right to bring that wisdom to the West.
1: But not to make it public. It would be a mystery yes. school in the West, but not
2: public. Yes, and he wanted to really train people before anyone did any kind of teaching uh, of of the material at all. And it was, you know, only with his permission.
1: Only with his permission that that, that people would teach.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Did he, in fact, before he got disillusioned with the publicity? Uh, Uh, bless some people to teach the tradition?
2: Yes, there were a number of SOT groups. The organization was called SOT, Seekers After Truth. truth. And my group was the first of the SOT group, but I think think there were four or five of them ultimately. And uh, the later ones were not taught directly by him. They were taught by people he had trained and asked to teach.
1: Were you given permission to teach?
2: Um, well, I taught Enneagram um, in the second group for the second Sot group, and I would assist him when he did workshops at Esalen. So yes and no. Um, he also. There there was a point where I wanted to write a book on the Enneagram and he was all for it. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. But well, of that's, course it was under that's very him. It under was him. under him. You know, under his auspices.
1: So his objection was not to people writing books, it was to people writing books that weren't under his auspices.
2: No, I think the real rub in the eighties was that people were just publishing one side of the Enneagram, only the psychological part, right. separate from the spiritual part. Right. And not as part of an ongoing teaching school. So
1: Mystery school, right.
2: Yeah, yeah. So
1: Helen Palmer was the first of those, wasn't she? Yeah, Right. And my understanding is that uh, she worked with him at least what I've heard, I don't know, but somewhat briefly, is that correct?
2: As far as I know, yes.
1: As far as you know. I mean, I have high regard for Helen Palmer's work, very high, but I'm just trying to, Mm -hmm. I've said to you that one of the things that amazes me is that no one that I know of has done a, a comprehensive history of the emergence of the Enneagram as a psycho-spiritual teaching. I'm just astonished It's such an amazing opportunity and it should be done now because even though Ichazo and Naranjo are dead, uh, you and some of the other people who were part and Hamid Ali and others are still with us, you know? Mm -hmm. So one would think that somebody would be doing what I'm doing with you, which Mm -hmm. is to do, you know, in-depth spiritual biographies of people who were part of the original teaching group so you know that's part of my motivation quite aside from my very high regard for you as a teacher of enneagram Um, and i don't know your work as a spiritual teacher but i i believe it to be of very high quality but i certainly know your work as a teacher of enneagram and i think it's extraordinary so so what I hadn't understand, I had this series of misapprehensions. I thought they were smaller groups. Now I understand there were 50 to 70 people. Couldn't quite figure out how that worked with this being a mystery school that was not public. Now I understand you wanted to write a book. He encouraged you, but he encouraged you because it would be under his supervision. right? Mm-hmm. And what bothered him was when people started teaching this, as an uh, enneagram of personality and not embedding it in psycho work. Yes. Okay, yes.
2: that's
1: very helpful to me.
2: Yes.
1: So, uh, so what happened to you uh, after you did those courses, or put it differently, what was, this is a much better question, what was the impact of participating in those courses and working with Claudio at Esalen and so forth. How did, how did your spiritual journey shift as a result of that experience?
2: Well, it was really the, the formal beginning of my spiritual journey. And I had a lot of openings. I had a lot of, Experiences that were uh, the kinds of things I had experienced doing drugs, but without. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned a huge amount about myself because we were doing tremendous amounts of psychological work as well as lots of different spiritual practices. So On the one hand, there were huge openings. On the other hand, I very quickly, largely through working with the the Enneagram, got down to a very deep sense of deficiency. Part of what I've come to understand over the years is that at the core of our ego structure is a sense of emptiness or lack, and most people do all kinds of things to try to cover over that lack or fill it up or somehow get away from it. But doing the work that we did, it got it was it was right there for me, and um, it took me a long time to get through that. So there, there were kind of twin legacies, I would say, from that whole period.
1: The twin legacies being what?
2: Well, a, a, a transcendent kind of opening, mm-hmm. more and more access to true nature, and simultaneously more in touchness with a deep sense of personal lack.
0: You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Sandra Maitrey and host Michael Lerner.
1: Is there any way that you can describe what were to you maybe one or two or three of the deepest openings that you experienced?
2: Well, let's see. I had one huge one at one point where I realized that I was absolutely perfect and that um, I was in touch with the fabric of love in the whole universe. Um, and it felt like realizing what the whole culture in the Haight-Ashbury had been trying to embody the, the loving fabric of reality. So that became very, very clear to me. It was, it was a really big opening at the time. Um, but there were lots of them. There were just lots of them. We did a ton of different kinds of meditative practices. And practices that he'd learned from Ichazo, and uh, lots of them were were um, were big, important, useful. You know, you, one of one of them. I'll, I'll give you another example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. He had us do a one day. He had us do a death meditation. Mm-hmm. Pretend that we were dead. And, of course, there was a long preamble getting into it. Um, but it was extraordinary. Mm. It was quite an extraordinary experience of leaving everything, letting go of everything, letting go of everyone, letting go of this sense of self. And it was really huge.
1: You know, you're very aware that a lot of the traditions um, teach dying before death. As, as um, Was that part of his teaching also or not?
2: I, if it was, I don't remember it.
1: Hmm. Now, I understand that Naranjo felt deeply connected both to Ichazo and to Gurdjieff. Is that correct?
2: Well, to be more accurate, I I think he he revered Gurjief. He, mm-hmm. he never, of course, met him. He he revered his teaching, and Ichazo as um, there's an interview that Claudio did with um, Ian McNay of Conscious TV where he talks about how he never really trusted Ichazo. So I wouldn't say that he was connected to Ichazo in that way. He learned well, a lot from him, but I don't think he ever quite regarded him as his teacher.
1: How interesting. I, I thought I had listened to that interview, but I, perhaps I didn't get all the way through it to that critical point. Um, so he never really trusted Ichazo. That's fascinating and um yet he did feel is it not true that when he studied at erica with ichazo and the desert of chile that that's where he he found the foundation stones of his understanding of enneagram Mm
2: -hmm.
1: but then as you pointed out uh Uh, Naranjo as a psychiatrist uh, came to to the study of Enneagram with a tremendous amount more context and object relations, uh, psychology, and many different psychiatric traditions, Karen Horney's work and so forth. Um, So he was beginning to build out in fundamental and transformative ways what he had learned from Nerona.
2: Yeah, from Ichazo. I mean,
1: from from Ichazo.
2: Yes, yes.
1: And then I think you also said that in the courses that he was teaching, there was a real way in which you, the participants, were helping him fill out and work out what he was thinking through. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So this was a... This was a work in uh, in transition. This wasn't a finished system that he was describing.
2: Well, yes and no. I d- I don't know exactly how finished it was. Um, Claudio was a five on the enneagram, mm-hmm. and he a lot of what he taught was very cryptic. Mm. So he wouldn't explain everything. He would ask us to figure out. Like, for example, with each of the subtypes, there are words that are associated with each one. Now, I don't know whether those keywords came from Ichazo or came from Claudio himself. But part of what we did in the group was we would, in our own experience, we would explain what the keywords meant to the whole group and then Claudio would add his two cents about what he saw so in all honesty I don't know how much of what we were discovering was building on his knowledge or just confirming it. Mm.
1: That's, that's very helpful to me. So let's bring in uh, Hamid Ali, your friend uh, uh, who was in the early groups with you. Uh, You teach in the Diamond uh, Approach, which he is the founder of. Um, uh, Karen Johnson comes back into this because she uh, is listed as a co-founder, I believe, of,
0: mm-hmm.
1: does, is she listed as a co-founder of the Ridlawn School or is she a co-founder of the Diamond Approach, which evolved within the Ridlon School?
2: I think it's the latter, but I'm not. Yeah,
1: I think that's right.
2: Positive.
1: I think that's right. And I just learned that, uh, it's that uh, the word almas actually literally means diamond. Yeah. And so AH is uh, an uh, anagram for Hamid Ali, right?
2: It's, it's, it's Abdul Hamid. That's his his Abdul Hamid. Name. Okay,
1: I get it. Uh, okay. So it's his initials followed by, what is it, the Arabic word for a diamond? Yes. And so the diamond approach. So let's just talk about the spiritual tradition out of which the word diamond comes in the diamond approach? Where where did he take that from?
2: I think that it came from the fact that what was coming through him, and it, that's really how the diamond approach evolved, it was coming through him. Mm-hmm. and And Karen really helped him formulate it, and that's why mm. she's considered a co-founder. But mm. he was really the conduit. Mm. And um, that what was coming through him was so sharp and delineated and clear, like a diamond.
1: Mm, I get it. So,
2: but isn't
1: there, isn't there, like there's a Diamond Sutra, isn't there in the Buddhist tradition, I believe?
2: There is, yeah. And is
1: that, would he connect the work to the Diamond Sutra teaching? I don't
2: think so. Okay. I don't think
1: so. Okay. So, yeah, well, let's just talk about Hamid Ali for a minute. So he had been uh, studying physics, right?
2: Yeah. Uh,
1: When it came to him that physics wasn't going to answer the most fundamental questions about the nature of the universe.
2: Yes.
1: So I think he was in a cafe with a bunch of other students and teachers, and he looked around. He said, I don't want to be one of these people if I remember correctly, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: something like that. That
2: sounds right. Yeah,
1: right. So he embarked on this. Now, did he embark on his spiritual search after he uh, met Naranjo, or was he already on it before that?
2: I think he'd been going down to Esalen quite a bit before that and doing lots of different groups and exploring things. But I, I don't, I don't exactly know. That's my best recollection. Uh, he's mm-hmm. a little bit older than me. He's five years older.
1: Yeah, he's so, my age.
2: Yeah. So he was, he was involved in the consciousness movement uh, a little bit before I was, mm-hmm. you know. And I think he was kind of checking out what was available and, and so on.
1: But and he's a five also.
2: Yes. Right.
1: And I happen to be a five, by the way. I think I okay. mentioned that <laughs> well, I know the type. <laughs> um, so uh, did you meet Hamid uh, in Naranjo's course?
2: Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah. So what was your first impression on meeting Hamid?
2: Well, there was a group of us who were kind of the... Evolved to be sort of the most devoted people in the group kind of the the core of the group and he was one of them and he was very shy at the time very retiring uh, Very bright Obviously Hamid is one of the most brilliant people I know And as is Claudio by the way Um so he he was very sensitive and very um he was kind of a sleeper.
1: Mhm. That's how he, he held are. his
2: he held his cards pretty close to the chest.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, how big was that in our group of serious students?
2: Well, we ended up forming a commune together, so initially there were six of us there were a few more people um, who ended up basically living at um, Claudio's house. So they were definitely part of the inner circle as well. So, you know, probably a dozen people altogether, I'd say.
1: Can you um, mention any of the others that, strike you as particularly relevant to the history of Enneagram uh, and Claudio's teachings and Sh- like
2: Sure um, Kathleen Reardon Speeth mm-hmm. Was one of them kathy became very very close with claudio and um, I think really ran sought for a while along with him Mm Uh, let's see any other people who I don't, I don't, um, there was Hamid Hamid's wife, Marie Ali, uh, was also part of the group. She was also part of that core, but I don't think any other people are, are prominent in, in Mm -hmm. Enneagram history.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I read a book by uh, John Davis called "The Diamond Approach: An Introduction to the Teachings of Age." Almost.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, do you uh, have you read that?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you think it's a useful synopsis?
2: Yeah, I do. Okay.
1: Um, quite a few of the prominent spiritual teachers of our time have Admired to different degrees the diamond approach. So Jack cornfield says uh, The work of a. H. Almas places him among the greatest psychologists alive today His brilliant vision of the human psyche embraces our being from early development to the highest realms of spirit From this he then offers a new language and direct approach for awakening to this manifold nature um, and um, Ken Wilber uh, uh, says, I myself can recommend the diamond approach as probably the most balanced of the widely available, available spiritual psycho- psychologies slash therapies. Now, Ken Wilber then went on to disagree with Hamid Ali H. Almas on, if I recall correctly, the nature of infant experience. Is that correct? Have you followed that? at all vaguely okay so there are these kind of you know there are these places but the point i'm really making is that i'm trying to situate the diamond approach in the context of of psycho spiritual traditions and Mm -hmm. i think what i'm saying is that intellectually uh, uh the diamond approach is highly regarded by, not just intellectually, psychologically and spiritually, highly regarded by some of the great teachers of our time. Mhm yeah but i and this is I'm just trying things out with you. It seems to me there's always a big distinction between what you can learn from something in writing and videos and podcasts and then in being in the presence of somebody. But then when they start an institutionalized school and there are all the things that go with institutionalization, there is at least the opportunity for some very thoughtful people to feel that the school itself does not give them the kind of direct access that they were experiencing from the teachings in the pure form of the teachings. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I I have friends who were deeply into it, who ultimately left uh, the school. And, uh, And I think it's important in a balance trying to tell the story of this. They felt that there were dimensions of it that began to feel cult-like to them. And Mm that the the kind of, you know, the idealization of uh, Hamid uh, in the school felt to them more an obstacle to their own further work than not. And of course, lots of people get disappointed with every possible form of spiritual teaching. But I guess the question I have for you, since you teach the Diamond Approach, since you are a close friend of Hamid and uh, uh, you know a very senior teacher in the tradition, um, do you think that uh, do you think that it is a challenge in any spiritual tradition that doesn't want to deify its founder uh, to avoid um, that kind of challenge that I think goes with institutionalization of spiritual teachings. Mm -hmm. I know that's a long, complicated question, but I think you know what I'm getting at. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that what you're getting at is, is true. It's a, it's a, it's a definite danger. And the, the thing that to me has felt very clean about the way Hamid has led The Ridwan school is that from the beginning. He's always emphasized that this isn't about him It's not about a teacher it's about a teaching and the teaching itself If a person hangs in with it and really does the practices it is transformative Mm. and people uh, Now that I mean there there are many many groups. I I don't even remember how many groups there are right now so most people don't have a lot of contact with Hamid at all and um, Those people are blossoming and changing mm. I mean, that's that's why I teach this work because it really does help people open up and shift in very fundamental ways and it did that for me.
1: Wonderful.
2: So, you know, I, I think there are definite dangers in institutionalization and there's, you know, the founder syndrome and all of that stuff. Um, but I think, I think Hamid's really done quite a good job keeping it as clean as possible.
1: I find his writing extraordinary. I mean, I have... Um, I have the Pearl Beyond Price, I have the Inner Journey Home, Soul's Realization of the Unity of Reality, I have Space Cruiser Inquiry, Guidance for the Inner Journey, Um, and uh, I obviously have uh, Facets of Unity, which is an extraordinary book on the Enneagram of Holy Ideas. So um, I find his his work um, remarkable. but I'm trying to understand the whole context, both his writing uh, and uh, his teaching, and then the institutional expression of it
2: through Mm -hmm. the school. Yeah, yeah.
1: I want to suggest that we just take a five-minute break and stretch and, you know, because this is intense work. Let's give ourselves five minutes. Sandra Maitrey, welcome back to the New School at Commonweal and to our conversation on your spiritual journey uh, with the diamond teaching, uh, which you're a very senior teacher and with Enneagram teachings and uh, your two extraordinary books on the subject Um, the um, Enneagram of passions and virtues and the spiritual dimensions of the Enneagram and I think what might make sense now because we will after all, we're sort of leaving your life history at the um, um, at the point where you have done these uh, sessions with uh, Claudio Naranjo, and, and we talked about um, uh, the impact on you. Mm-hmm. But obviously, you've had a long life since then. Mm-hmm. But I think it might make sense now to go to your books and your current thinking and then perhaps come back later to the rest of the the story if that's all right okay yeah so uh your two books um the spiritual dimension of the enneagram and the enneagram of passions and virtues um you wrote the spiritual dimension of the enneagram first and um what were you trying to What was the inner drive that caused you to create this extraordinary book, The Spiritual Dimension of the Enneagram, Nine Faces of the Soul? Mm -hmm. What was driving you?
2: Well, I had just finished putting together Hamid's book, Facets of Unity. Facets of Unity is a compilation of a whole series of teachings that Hamid gave. And I was the first editor taking the raw transcripts and turning it into uh, a book, basically. And that was a project that I think it was, I don't know, maybe a year or two that I was working on it. And at the end of it, the the publishing team or the the team that was in charge of, of putting the book together asked me if I would write an appendix for it, which would be the nine personality types. And I said to them, this is not an appendix. To really do justice to it, it's a book. So, you know, we let that slide. And I had been teaching Enneagram for, God, I mean, off and on since I was 24. And um, I taught it. I I lived in a Buddhist meditation community for a couple of years. I taught it there. Uh, You know, I, I taught classes when I came back to the States. And so... I had become, um, let's see, I'm trying to find the right words for it. I was, um, I felt like the Enneagram system was not being expressed in the context in which I learned it as a spiritual tool. Uh, At the point where I started to write my book, people were doing all kinds of stuff, you know, like how to find a partner using the Enneagram, using it in business, using it for publicity, things like that. And I I was a real purist in those days. And it was like, you know, that's not what the system is all about. So I wanted to write a book about the Enneagram that was really grounded in spiritual understanding so that the linkage of our psychology as one of the nine types is directly derivative out of our disconnection with true nature and to really connect those dots. So that was, that was why I set out to do it.
0: You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Sandra Maitrey and host Michael Lerner.
1: I find these two books really extraordinary. The second one, The Enneagram of Passions and Virtues, uh, that came out, um, what, how many years after the first one? The first one was 2000 second was 2005 is that right yeah mm-hmm. and you know what's really fascinating I mean, that your your coverage of the different points is fascinating but for me what's particularly fascinating are the the chapters and sections in both books where you're doing overviews so example in the first book you have a very substantial introduction um And then you have a chapter called The Inner Triangle and The Fall. Uh, And um, then you go into the types. And then at the end, um, you have uh, the inner flow and the child within. Um, And uh, then you have the subtypes and the wings and determining Years In the Enneagram of Passions and Virtues, Um, you have um, chapter one, the Enneagram, the soul, the passions, and the virtues. Then you go into the the types, but then uh, you have a really interesting approach, which uh, the way you group them is um, the outer directed corner, two, three, and, uh, you know, points nine, eight, and one. The image corner three points three two and four, the fear corner. Um, so in that book, um, the um, you have some amazing diagrams which I haven't seen anywhere else as vividly done. Um, but um, the the I guess what I'm coming to is that we learn in some ways, the most about your approach from the places where you decided to do chapters of overview that just weren't on the point so long. Am I making sense to you?
2: Um, not exactly.
1: All right. Uh, so let's just take, for example, uh, the chapter on in, uh, the spiritual dimensions of the Enneagram called the inner triangle and the fall, right? uh-huh. mm-hmm. So what were you trying to convey in that chapter on points nine, three, and six?
2: I was trying to convey how we can see within the map of the Enneagram a sequence of what happens for all of us psychologically mm-hmm. as we develop a personality structure. And this is something that Claudio had talked about way back in the old days. And um, Hamid really developed that understanding. And so to me, it's always been a part of the map of the Enneagram.
1: Okay. And um, in the Enneagram of Passions and Virtues, get to the overview chapters there, um, uh, the first chapter um, is the kind of overview, mm-hmm. and um, I think, all right, I'm not necessarily doing the most articulate job of describing this, but You write there, abandoning the old spiritual model of the ego as enemy or devil needing to be overcome or extinguished, Alma saw that direct contact and exploration of our mental constructs opens them up, revealing psychodynamics that put these self-representations and belief in place. Further exploration leads to the core of these psychological structures, loss of contact with one of the qualities that is variously called the divine God being true nature. To put it differently, what he found was that our psychological structures arise as responses and coping strategies to deal with estrangement from aspects of our divine nature, a process occurring for the most part in early childhood. Hand in hand with the development of our ego structure then is a gradual diminishment of access to the fullness of our nature. Key to the Diamond Approaches method is learning to be present to our here and now experience and exploring and inquiring inquiring into the inner terrain that we encounter uh, and so, so forth. So it just seems to me that when I read those overview chapters, I was gaining more insight into how the diamond approach differs from other teachings of the Enneagram, and then how your particular understanding of the diamond approach, which is a different slant from Hamid Ali's, uh, just because you're another different person coming from a different Enneatype perspective. Um, I learned more in those chapters than I did when you were focused on the points. Is that clearer? Sure,
2: sure. yeah, yeah, because in those chapters, I'm really explicating the theoretical mindset from which I'm coming in the descriptions.
1: So, for example, somewhere in one of the two books, and, and one of the things I've noticed about at least the good Enneagram teachers is that they're kind about their differences with others. Uh, They're respectful. So for example, a lot of people come to the Enneagram through Riso and Hudson's The Wisdom of the Enneagram. And you have a very respectful treatment of of that somewhere where you say, um, uh, you know, Riso and Hudson's theory of different levels of personality development is all very well and good for what it is. a prison is still a prison, even if the walls are expanded. And your approach was: you want to help people get out of get out of jail. You want to help people get out of prison. That's yep. an example, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Another example is your description of the the flow of the enneagram. Maybe we could take some time with that one, okay. uh, because it seems to me there you're really You go in depth into something I haven't seen treated in quite as much depth in many other places. Mm -hmm. So how would you describe the inner flow?
2: Well, the inner flow is the dynamic movement from one point in the Enneagram to the next. Mm -hmm. Uh, there, There are a number of different levels that you can explore the inner flow on like one level uh, which I write about in the spiritual dimension is looking at the development of the personality as a whole and the various strategies that characterize each type and how they're a progression, how we can see that when a particular attempt to resolve life's Difficulties one's inner sense of deficiency or you know, whatever level you're talking about things on When when you get that that's not working There's a natural movement toward the type that follows and that's moving in the direction of the arrows according to the lines of flow in the Enneagram and um, so that's one level.
1: Could you give us an example of that? It might just be helpful. So, for example, if one is if one is at point one,
2: okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's a that's a really simple one. So the the dilemma for ones the belief is that I am imperfect. And that I need to be fixed. I need to be changed. And the if you continue in that mindset, nothing you ever do is going to make you perfect enough. The logical next step is toward the melancholy at point four, mm-hmm. a sense of depression, a sense of withdrawal. Um, four's internally have a very strong inner critic that's constantly telling them how imperfect they are. And so the whole personality type it's, is one that's kind of giving up on oneself. It's a kind of, it's characterized by melancholy. Mm-hmm. And then moving from four to two, it's like, okay, after You realize that longing and suffering and trying to be the most unique, interesting person you can possibly be at four doesn't really satisfy you. The movement to two is a natural one of getting more relational, being interested in other people, believing that where it's at is through that special person out there who I'm going to flatter and become indispensable to, right? And then once you have done that and basically made yourself into a doormat for that very special person, the natural movement is to point eight. It's like the hell with this, you know, the hell with everybody. I'm going to be king or queen of the mountain. I don't need anybody, I don't care about anybody, and so on. You know, so that, and you can go around the whole circle in that way. So if you move backward, move one step back uh, against the line of flow, this is what is called the heart point of your enneatype. And Almas developed the understanding that the heart point represents qualities that were not held, not supported when we were children, but that are actually closer to the bone of who we are, and that our own enneatype developed in a kind of reaction formation to cope with what wasn't tolerated. And so as we move backward against the line of flow and we start to find within ourselves a younger part of ourselves where the development got truncated and we open that up, then we start feeling more whole and we're connecting more and more deeply to ourselves.
1: Right. So other people interpretation of the arrows, if I remember correctly, is that the forward movement following the arrows is toward the stress point. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And the backward movement um, is toward uh, what do they call it? Um, do they call it the heart? The heart space. I
2: think, I think some people call it the integration point. Yeah, the like
1: integration. That. Okay. So Hamid's interpretation and yours is that the backward movement is to that part of us that was not nourished in childhood, that was not paid attention to.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. And actually has qualities that are forbidden, that are taboo to us.
1: So for me, um, as a five, and again, you have to forgive me, because I've only studied this for five or seven years. And being a five, I do it intensely, but I'm still a beginner. as a five, my heart point is eight, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And my uh, stress point, or uh, whatever, is seven.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, so, just to further develop that a little bit, I mentioned this to you in a preparatory conversation. In terms of the um, the three uh, drives, um, you know. Um, self preservation social and one to one or sexual um, I have never been able to quite be sure whether I think I look to the world like a social five because I'm interested in all these ideas and structures, but it seems to me that the driving force in my inner life is very much one to one so um do you agree with the theory that the the three self-preservations uh social and sexual that those three uh qualities or drives that they stack on top of each other that there's one in the top one in the middle and one in the bottom and the bottom one often reverses that's something that mm-hmm. i get from beatrice chestnut but is that
2: mm-hmm.
1: broadly agreed
2: um well, what I learned from Claudio is that we have one central instinct, one subtype, right. and then the other two instincts—the keyword switches. Oh, I see.
1: They switch.
2: Yeah, the, of the oh, other the- two. So it's not exactly a stacking like you were talking about. Oh,
1: okay. So that's that's a useful distinction. So we have one dominant, and the other two switch.
2: They, they switch in terms of what characterizes them. In other words, let's say you're a self-preservation type, mm-hmm. then your social relationships take on a more sexual orientation. Your social relationships take on, um, well, they take on a more sexual orientation and vice versa.
1: I get it. Interesting. Okay. So is it true that uh, as a five, for example, that when I move to eight that I can take on the higher parts of eight as opposed to lower, or does that just depend on the level of evolution that one is at?
2: Well, the, the system that that we learned the Enneagram from Claudio. Mm-hmm. There wasn't this higher or lower notion. Right. Right. You're either you're either enmeshed in your personality structure or you're more or less free from it. Okay. So I think what people are talking about when they use higher and lower has to do with the degree of realization of a person. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure about that because it, it wasn't part of my understanding around the Enneagram. I
1: understand that. So, uh, Claudio brought many different psychological uh, systems into this, but uh, Karen Horney seems to play a particularly important role in a lot of the books. Yeah. Can you say more about why Karen Horney, was so important to enneagram studies.
2: Um, I just know that she was very important to Claudio's understanding. I've never actually tracked how that correlated to what he developed in terms of the enneagram. Mm. So I don't. I don't think I can really answer that question.
1: Okay. Another dimension of uh, the psychological work that comes into uh, uh, this is object relations and I wondered whether you had looked at that at all.
2: Definitely Um, I did a lot of studying it when I was training to become a diamond approach teacher.
1: So what does object relations bring to the study of Enneagram?
2: Well I think that you can look at each uh, Enneagrammatic type as trapped in a particular object relation.
1: So, Karen Hornei and and object relations seem to be two of the things that Naranjo emphasized, and object relations, uh, at least in your experience, is the one that you studied and learned more about.
2: It is. Um, when I was working with Claudio, I didn't even know the word object relations. Mm-hmm. So if that's in his later work, it's not something that we worked with early on.
1: Oh, okay, okay. Um, but it is something that Almas talks about, isn't it?
2: Yes, yes, yes. We in find. In fact, a-
1: one of his books. I'm just looking at the books right now. Um, one of his big books. Um, yeah, probably on price, integration of personality with being mm-hmm. an object relations approach.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: Did did Almas, so Karen Hornai, did she matter to Almas as well as Naranjo or was that more Naranjo's?
2: No, thing? I don't think she was such a big influence on Hamid. Okay, okay,
1: good. So, you wrote these two books in 2000 and 2005. Um, Let's go back to your own journey out of the early work with Hamid and as you became an Enneagram teacher. Um, What happened in your life that were significant developments um, as you moved into? later years, what, how did your life shift? How did your understanding of the work shift? What, we've talked at some length of your earlier life, but I'm, I'm just trying to understand what the kind of major developments as you look at your life have been over the period of time that you've been teaching.
2: Uh, let's see, over the period of time I've been teaching, I would say that some of the major influences and events happened before that um after the group ended with claudio uh i did a number of things i taught the fisher hoffman process um as did hamid that was you know that was something we did together and um i also became trained as a vipassana meditation teacher and lived in a meditation center for a couple of years. Um, And really, it wasn't until I discovered the Diamond Approach that the inner sense of deficiency that I had talked about, that I was left with from the work with Claudio, that that resolved. And that's what really grabbed my attention about the diamond approach, that it was a way of working that um, meditating and any of the other work I had done did not touch, you know, it was actually um, touching parts of myself that had been impenetrable before. So, really my life changed as soon as I started um, working with the diamond approach and, and became Hamid's student instead of just his friend. And that was a long time ago that I was in my mid thirties or early thirties, I guess, when I started working with the diamond approach. So it's been, it's been almost 40 years and, um, the The world I live in is a completely different one than the the world was that I was moving through when I started. So it's been um, it it's been a very gradual shift. Uh, I I can't say I mean I I can't look back on specific things that were like you know huge that shifted everything. It was much more a gradual. Shifting of my sense of reality both inner and outer That's Mm. happened over that time Yeah,
1: so that's very useful to my understanding because What I had begun to think was you had these experiences with Naranjo and I hadn't understood that there was a whole different level of realization that took place after you Discovered the diamond approach and became a student of Hamid's as well as a, a friend and colleague. So, um, so that's important because it it really distinguishes between what you got from Naranjo and what you got from the diamond approach.
2: Yes, I what I got from Claudio was openings. Mm-hmm. What I got from Hamid was learning how to walk through those openings. Mm-hmm. learning how to realize them and integrate them and digest them mm-hmm.
1: well i think we're beginning to reach the point in the conversation i think the next time we talk we might start at the point we're ending up with here which is when you began to work with the diamond approach and how you know how that changed your life and your your teaching after that
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Are there other things that you would like to say? Actually, there's something I want to ask you, um, which is um, uh, Karen Johnson seems to have been in and out of your life. Um, you described having the same boyfriend and a breakup when he fell in love with her. And um, then you were, and at the time that you took, uh, Naranjo's course. She was not involved, but then she did become involved and is very involved uh, with him to this day. So, what has that been like for you? What has that relational dance with Karen Johnson been like?
2: Well, it's been it's been huge. Uh, Karen's really been someone who She's she's younger than me But she was very much of a mentor for many many years and um, I Don't know we've just played very significant parts in each other's lives Uh, I introduced her to Hamid and that was how their collaboration began Mm -hmm. And, um, then, you know, back uh, through her, I came to the diamond approach. Uh, and so we've, we've really kind of cross pollinated each other's lives Mm -hmm. tremendously. And, um, our relationship has shifted and changed along the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I have tremendous respect and admiration for her. Uh and, you know, our relationship isn't the same as it was when we were kids.
1: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> isn't that true for most of us? Right, right. People have right. been really significant in our lives. Right. Is there anything else, as we just bring this segment to a close and, and look forward to our next conversation, are there any pieces of your life uh from childhood uh up through um you know all the changes of being a, a military child, um, then uh, ending up in high school in Palo Alto, Haight Ashbury in the 60s, um, and um and sort of beginning to put together the pieces from the spiritual approach of the spiritual experiences of childhood with the wholeness of uh, that you began to glimpse through psychedelics, then going to Israel, uh, that whole experience, and then um, Berkeley and art school and meeting Naranjo. Um, I think I'm beginning to grasp this segment of your life. Uh, Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't talked about that seems Important if we are to understand your journey from from this earlier part of your life Uh,
2: I'm I'm not sure Um, one thing I can say is that I Feel that for some reason I don't know why I was in The right place at the right time again and again and again Mm -hmm. um, to to Um, meet people who've really been movers and shakers in the consciousness movement. In I I mean, you know, going, going back to Thailand, I met the Beatles there twice. So, you know, I met Shirley MacLaine, I met Albert Finney. I mean, you know, I, I just, for some reason, I have some kind of, uh, I guess the Hindus would say some kind of karma. Where I um, I have just met and been influenced by some some culturally strong influences, you know. My my memoir editor says I'm to him I'm like the Forrest Gump of the consciousness movement.
1: Isn't that beautiful?
2: He was just shocked reading my memoir about all the different spiritual teachers that I came in in contact with you know so I mean to me it's not unusual but I guess to other people it is it's it's Mm -hmm. just been my life
1: do you like what God has made of you
2: oh definitely absolutely absolutely yeah
1: what a blessing to be able to say that
2: oh yeah oh yeah I mean I, I could have died 15 years ago, and it would be fine.
1: Hmm.
2: You know, I could go, I mean, right now during this pandemic, if I go, it's fine. Hmm. You know, I've had a very full life, and the rest of it is really service.
1: Hmm. What is your view of uh, what happens to the soul after death?
2: Well, I think it depends upon a person's state of realization. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if there's a deep state of realization, that it's it's a, it can be a pretty seamless journey. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I is think
1: it a seamless journey back into the ocean of consciousness, or is it a seamless journey into another incarnation?
2: I think that depends on the soul. Mm. And what their job is?
1: Would you like to reincarnate, or would you like to go into the ocean?
2: I'm not sure I want to come back to this planet. Mm-hmm. I think, given the the ecological crisis we're facing, I think it's going to be a tough world mm-hmm. for the next generation. I'm not eager to come back here.
1: In this particular moment in time. There are some people who are hoping that a great spiritual realization will take place and that we will figure out how to get it right. Uh, that is a beautiful hope. Uh, do you what do you think the odds are that that's how it's going to go?
2: Unfortunately, I don't think the odds are very good. Yeah. I know that given my own life and how much time and work and dedication it's taken that we're we don't have that kind of time Mm -hmm. so i i i hope so i hope so
1: but if it turns out that we don't have a collective realization that enables us to change the trajectory then Um, what do do you teach and what do we tell our children um, to sustain them in uh, this Kali Yuga that
2: we seem to be in? To learn how to be rooted in a reality in which those are waves on the surface. Mm. To find the bottom of the ocean and to learn how to abide there.
1: sandra Maitri, thank you beyond words for being willing to have this conversation with me i'm very honored by your candor and your your willingness to help me stumble toward an understanding of your own work and uh your teaching and and the immense piece of history of enneagram that you have not only participated in but been among the leaders in
2: Thank you. Thank you very much, Michael.
1: We'll come back for another, another conversation.
2: Okay. All right. Sounds good.
0: You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Sandra Mitri and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.